When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Wednesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I'm Dan Lobby, joined by Mary Kate Cabot. Lance Reisland is going to be joining uh, a little bit later to look back on the Browns' loss to the Saints. Uh, Mary Kate, let's get right to it here, though. Uh, let's just kind of go through here in this first segment uh, some updates and, and kind of some some news of the day sorts of things. It's not really well, the Miles Garrett part is news. I do want to talk about Sean Watson in a little bit, but the Miles Garrett part is news. After we recorded last night, you actually put up a story kind of updating on, on what happened with Miles Garrett. So I, I guess in case people miss that, kind of get us up to speed on that and uh, and kind of where things stand right now. So it's my understanding that um, this misstep had everything to do with the fact that Miles Garrett was sick last week. If you remember, and everyone probably does, he missed Tuesday and Wednesday of practice with an illness. And then he showed back up on Friday and he practiced on a limited basis and he did not have an injury designation. And when we talked to him on Friday, he still seemed sick to me. So he was legitimately sick. There's no question about that. And then he only played uh, 67% of the snaps in the game, 36 snaps. That's not a lot. Um, So I think that, you know, that he probably was still a little little bit under the weather. But we also know that he was benched for the first three plays of the game, the first series uh, of the Saints. So it's my understanding that somehow he did not communicate something properly to the team about his illness. I don't know exactly what that means. Hopefully we'll get something from Miles about this. But there was some kind of a lack of communication or a misunderstanding between Miles and the team on this illness. And did he was he supposed to show up for something and he didn't? Uh, I, I don't know exactly how that went down. But in addition to the fact that he was benched for the first series, he was also fined. And I think that's significant. They're fining Miles and benching him. And once again, he is their team captain. He's basically the team leader. He's certainly the defensive leader of the football team. He's sort of the team spokesperson. And um, I think it's significant that, uh, you know, that instead of chalking this up to some kind of a miscommunication or a mistake, they went ahead and fined him and benched him for the first part of the game. And I'm very curious to hear what Miles has to say about it, because usually he doesn't pull any punches. If something doesn't sit well with him, uh, he usually expresses that. So again, we don't usually talk to him. His day to talk is Friday. That's a long time for us to show up there on Wednesday and Thursday and have to wait until Friday to ask him about this. I don't know if it'll work out like that, but that's basically my understanding of what happened. So I was thinking about this today. Um, kind of with the reporting you've done on this now. And last week when Joe Woods talked, he got asked about miles. This was Thursday and he got asked about miles and he said, I think he came in earlier. There was like an, I think in there, like, isn't like, 
Will Miles, I think it was uh, on if Miles Garrett returned to um, to Berea after missing yesterday's practice. And he said, I think he came in earlier. And when he said that, I'm like, it was kind of weird. It was like, wait, you don't know if Miles is here or not. But, you know, maybe in my mind, I thought, well, maybe he wasn't feeling well. Maybe he's going to come in in time for practice or whatever, something like that. But now sort of in light of, of all of this, it, it kind of makes that statement a little more, in, you know, you kind of understand like, okay, there was some sort of miscommunication or Miles didn't do a good enough job communicating. And so that sort of weird answer from Joe Woods gets a little less weird, I guess. Yeah, you're right about that. And, and that is the day, of course, and, and I might have screwed up my days. He didn't practice on Tuesday and Wednesday. He did come back on Thursday. On right. I said, yeah, and I yeah. just said Thursday. So Joe Woods talked Wednesday. Yeah, and like yes. you said, Miles was gone Tuesday, Wednesday, came back Thursday because it yeah. was a Saturday game. Yeah, the Saturday game really messes us up. But anyways, so you're right. That was a little bit odd. And, and the day that Joe Woods talked is the day that Kevin Stefanski doesn't talk. So we didn't have an opportunity to ask him, hey, is Miles practicing? Is How's he doing? What's, you know, we you can't really uh, go too in-depth with the coordinators on that kind of stuff because they're not supposed to tell us too much about injuries and availability and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, so, you know, I do think it's a little bit significant that the, that there was this kind of a disconnect and that Kevin didn't really play favors. He didn't say, oh, well, it's Miles. So, you know, Miles can get away with, um, you know, doing whatever it was that he did. The other thing that I thought was somewhat significant about it is that he flipped his Porsche and admitted that he was speeding. I think it was something like 20 some miles over the speed limit that in, when he self-reported. And it was his like eighth time of doing something like that. And they did not bench him at all or, or discipline him to our knowledge uh, for that incident. I remember asking specifically if they would discipline him and they said no. So I don't know what he did in this instance, you know, precisely, but whatever it was, it was a violation of team rules and they treated him like any other player. That's the interesting part of it too. The, the whole, you know, you, you flipped your Porsche and you've been speeding for years and that, like you said, that didn't merit any punishment. I also wonder if, if it elevated to the point where they basically benched him for a few plays and then fined him, that doesn't feel like a first time offense. You know, I, I feel like, look, we've all had issues where, oh, I forgot to text somebody or I forgot to let somebody know something or like it happens. And usually it's like, okay, hey, you, you know, you've got to be better. You've got to do a better job of this. Then when it happens again, that's when it starts to become an issue. This is purely speculation, of course, but I would have to think if it reached this point that maybe this is, you've got to wonder if this has been an ongoing issue or if it's at yeah. least happened before. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, they play everything really super close to the vest. And now, Kevin Stefanski, we know that he's done this with players before. He did it earlier this year with Grant Delpit, sat him down for the first play of the game for a disciplinary reason. And last year, he did it with Ronnie Harrison. And I think he's done it with other guys, too. Sometimes you don't really know because you can start out the game uh, in a different defense, or in a different formation, in a different front. And you might not notice that a guy isn't out there for a disciplinary reason. So I'm sure they've gotten several of these past us before where we just didn't ask about it or we didn't get it. But that has been Kevin's MO. That's how he handles it. He just sits the guy down. 
He doesn't get his start. And sometimes that can be significant. I mean, there are bonuses that get tied into starts. Uh, you know, there, there are certain things that can happen uh, dependent on how many starts that you have or whatnot. Um, so, uh, you know, this is how he handles these situations. And when we ask him about it, he just says, it's a team thing, my decision. And that's the end of the story. He does not elaborate on it. If you're ever going to get anything else out of anybody in these situations, it's going to be the player. So again, we'll ask Miles about it. We'll see what we get. One other topic here. Oh, and uh, you know, snap percentages. That's another bonus that, that we hear a mm-hmm. lot too. That's you know, that's yeah. something. So I, I guess kind of along those lines, Twitter has kind of taken this and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any chance that this becomes bigger than just, hey, Miles was Miles was benched and fined and everybody moves on? Is there any chance that this creates some kind of rift or something like that? Because that's sort of been where, where so some some people on social media have taken it to that level. I don't know if that happens, but is there any chance that could happen here between Miles and Kevin? You know, I don't think so. It doesn't seem like a big enough deal for that. Um, but I mean, you never really know, uh, because when you have a principled player, uh, that probably doesn't really feel like he did anything wrong and he yet is then fined and disciplined, um, you know, sometimes that, that does stick with you. And so, you know, I don't anticipate that this is going to turn into some large issue or be some kind of a deal breaker, but, uh, you know, it's probably something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think that's fair. There's been plenty of times where I've been like, oh, that's nothing. That'll never lead. And then all of a sudden, two months later, something crazy happens <laughs> related to, to that incident. Um, so you never know, again, especially with this uh, with this organization. All right, let's talk to Sean Watson. You put a column up not long before we hit record here on this podcast um, about Deshaun Watson. Uh, the headline here is Deshaun Watson made some really unbelievable throws for Saints and checked off the weather box. That was, of course, one of the things we were all watching. I do feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect right now between sort of what we're watching on the local level and what Browns fans are watching versus sort of what people are seeing on the national level. Now, some of that might have to do with um, you know, there, there might be some national folks that want to just dunk on the Browns for this trade, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but I do feel like there's a disconnect between, I think locally, we're all kind of seeing a quarterback making progress and checking mm-hmm. off boxes, but I have heard a lot of national people. And again, I've seen some stuff on Twitter where people are saying, well, Deshaun just hasn't been very good, which statistically he has not, but I, I think he's making progress. And I think your column here on, on the weather side of this and the weather you know, playing in that cold weather and he did make some throws, I, I think is another step in that direction. Yeah, I think so. And I went back and watched that final drive over again before I wrote this column today, just to have it in my mind. What I don't think helped, helped his cause, Dan, was for him to go out and lose on Christmas Eve day like that. And then for Baker Mayfield, <laughs> right? For Baker Mayfield to go out and beat the uh, the Broncos 51 to 14 or whatever the heck that was. That didn't help Deshaun's cause. And that, you know, that just is more uh, just rip on the Browns type of fodder. Right. Um, but I do think that Deshaun made progress from the standpoint of uh, making some really good throws on that final drive. Now he did have, uh, they did get a defensive holding call that may have saved them on that drive because it was third and 13, 
And um, and he threw a pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones that in that weather, it was hard to catch that ice, that rock that felt like a big ball of ice. Um, but Donovan Peoples-Jones couldn't hang on there. And, um, and they would have been in a fourth and 13 type of situation, right? And so very well, obviously could have been drive over there, would have been drive over. Um, I can't remember what yard line they were on at that point, but, um, but anyways, so they got a defensive holding call on that play for an automatic first down at the 45 at their own 45, uh, which breathed new life into the drive and, and it gave them an opportunity to go down and try to win the game. So that helped a lot. Uh, but then he came up with a couple of really big time throws four big time throws on that drive. Uh, the first two, uh, there was another third and long situation, third and 13, and he hit Amari Cooper with a 14 yard pass. So that was really, really good. And it was tight coverage, like really tight coverage. And that's why I think that throw is one where Amari after the game raved about Deshaun. I think he realizes he fit that into such a teeny tiny tight little window in such tight coverage. That's where Amari is like, Oh boy, we're going to be good. Um, so there was that one and that was to the Saints 33. And then he came back right after that and he hit David Bell with an 18 yard pass over the middle once again. Uh, into tight, he was pretty tightly covered as well. And it was a nice throw in those conditions and a really nice contested catch again. Uh, so those were two really good plays that got them down to the Saints 15. On the first, on first down from the Saints 15, he, there was nothing there. At least it appeared that there was nothing there. There's a slight thought in my mind that perhaps Dave Njoku might have been kind of open enough on that play, but. Deshaun, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know for sure that he was. He threw it out of the back of the end, so didn't see anything there. Uh, on second down, under real heavy pressure, he gets the ball off to Donovan Peoples-Jones in the back left corner of the end zone, really where only he could put it for, for Donovan Peoples-Jones to get it. Uh, so it was a very nice throw, but the, the rookie defensive back shoved Donovan Peoples-Jones in the back right upon catch. And the ball came out. He just, he didn't hang on. And um, I know he's going to want, he wants that one back. We didn't talk to him after the game, but you know, he wants that one back. It would have been an incredible catch, uh, but it was there. I mean, it, it was there. And then of course comes back on third down and it was the post route right over the middle to Ron Matthew covering David Njoku. But once again, it was a great throw. One, the kind of throw that you throw, you know, kind of up a little bit for David Njoku. He can go up and get it. And uh, and it went through his hands. So you have to give Deshaun Watson plenty of credit for those four excellent throws on this 18-play epic march. That's a long drive. Had to overcome a lot of adversity. There were a couple of – there was a, a three-yard sack on that play before, you know, he ended up taking the seven-yard sack on fourth down. Um, which obviously was not a good situation. Um, but he had to overcome some other adversity on the drive, so, like a zero catch for Kareem, and Nick got knocked back three yards on a play. So it, it wasn't going well, and he pulled it out. I mean, he pulled it out and put two would-be touchdown passes right in the hands of the receivers, and that shows 
that not only uh, can he flourish in those situations, but that he can do it when it's six degrees, minus 16 wind chill, 30 miles an hour wind gusts, snow on the field, and all kinds of other harsh conditions. So I do think that that was progress and a step forward and bodes well for the future. And, uh, you know, look, a year from now, if, if he puts up those numbers in, you know, a must-win game and, and the conditions are better, then, you know, it's fair to be critical of that. But I just think, you know, you go back to Houston where he looked just, he looked like a guy that hadn't played in 700 days. And mm-hmm. Cincinnati, I thought was a lot of, you know, he was having success out of structure, but struggled still within. And then these last two games that just, you see that command of the offense happening. And I just think, you know, as we're sitting there watching every single play and every single throw and, you know, watching him really, really closely, I, I think, I, I don't know. I, I think just it's easier to judge it a little bit differently than, you know, and I'm not saying that the people who aren't in this market aren't watching these games, but I, I just think, I think it's hard to to watch this and not say, okay, this guy is progressing, getting closer and closer to that quarterback he was. Eventually, he's going to have to be that quarterback. He's not there yet, um, but he's he's getting closer and closer. And, and there's been enough positive progress that I still think you, at least on the field, you feel good about what he could be and maybe how this trade could turn out for the Browns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just look at the at the pitching line and you see. 15 of 31 for 135 yards, no touchdowns, one interception, and a 47.1 rating. Of course, you're going to look at that and you're going to say, that's horrible. I mean, that those numbers look bad. And they were even worse in the second half, the decisive second half. It was like nine of or eight of 19 for 73 yards and a 31 rating and one interception and a 31 rating. And it's like, okay, the second half in the game, when, when you're really needed, you're not coming through, but that's when there were three dropped touchdown passes. And like you said, people aren't looking at that. They're not watching the whole game. They're not going back and looking at that last 18 play drive again to just see how he managed all of that. Um, But I do think that, that this was a sign that he can handle games like this, that he can figure that out. Uh, and I think that they're also going to have to support him with the right type of game plan in those type of situations, right? I mean, you want to help everyone succeed. And if it's clear that the receivers are having a difficult time in those conditions, catching that football, or, I mean, because part of it is in order to get it through unpredictable wins, you're putting a little bit more heat on the ball. I mean, he ro- he throws a very catchable ball but he might have been throwing a much harder ball than he usually does for the conditions. And in that situation, the receivers were having a hard time with it, not just because it was cold and their hands were cold, probably frozen, and the ball felt, like I said before, like a brick or a rock, Um, but he's putting more on it. So that's a recipe for disaster, really. I mean, Andy Dalton only attempted... 15 passes in that game, less than half what Deshaun did, because it's hard. It's really hard to pull it off. So they're going to have to make sure that they're supplying him with the right game plan for those kind of conditions, um, which I think still would have included um, more designed runs for him. There were other times in that game where he probably could have uh, taken off running. I mean, he only ran three times for 25 yards and 24 yards. And one of them was a 12-yard touchdown. So 
two other times for, you know, 12 yards. So, uh, you know, I think he could have run the ball a little bit more. I mean, Taysom, Taysom Hill ran nine times for 56 yards. Not that you want Deshaun doing that, but I think he could have run a little bit more himself. I think you could have run, I think you could have tried maybe Jerome Ford or Dearness Johnson a little bit, right? Because Kareem was having a hard time uh, making any hay, making any yards in that game. So if that's not working, try somebody else. Um, so but they'll all learn that as as they work more together. Okay, there we go. Uh, our first segment here on the Orange Brown Talk podcast. We're going to take a break. On the other side, Lance Reisland is going to join us to talk all about that Saints loss and what he saw. Mary Kay, I'll talk to you later. Sounds great. Welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I'm now joined by Lance Reisland to look back on the Browns' loss to the Saints. Lance, let's get to it. The run Running the football has been a big topic on social media, I'm sure on Sports Talk Radio, here on this podcast. It has been a big topic. Uh, the Browns, you know, when you look at the raw stats, I, you know, they did run the ball. You know, the runs were there. But when you watched the game, you could just kind of tell there wasn't this commitment to the run game necessarily. What did you see from the Browns' approach to running the football on Saturday? Well, I thought they'd be more committed to it with the weather. I thought they'd be creative, a little bit more creative in terms of quarterback runs, kind of like what they did on the touchdown run, the plus one with – that was a pin and pull uh, with Watson. Uh, But in the second half, there were three or four drives where they get to that second and eight. And as a play caller, I always try to – especially in this weather, how can you get it to second and five or third and five and under? Because third and five and under – now everything's on the table. You want to get those 50-50 downs where the defense, it's a pass or a run down. Uh, third and eight obviously becomes a, a pass down. So on three drives in a row, on second and seven plus, they threw the ball. Um, so it's just that commitment to uh, what they do well right now. Obviously, the transition from what they did to Watson is still a, a work in progress. But it's just right now on those 50-50 run pass things where they can go either way with it, they are committed to throwing the ball. I mean, to throw the ball 31 times in that weather was pretty, uh, pretty drastic. And a lot of those throws, they weren't the digs and the crossing routes and the mesh concepts and the hitches and the short RPOs. They were vertical uh, sail routes, things, you know, 15 to 20 yards downfield. Uh, from what you guys were saying and, and talking to you guys, the weather was just horrendous. And they were committed to throwing the ball vertically, which was kind of shocking. You know, I was thinking about this, and I mentioned it on our, our Tuesday pod. Do you remember that Thursday night Steelers game when the Browns had a drive late in the game? I, th- I think it was from the third into the fourth quarter. And they ran the ball 10 times on 11 plays, I think was the number. or Maybe it was 11 on 12. And they were doing stuff. You know, that was when they were going with uh, Yelda Froholt as a fullback near the goal line. They just came out and decided, we're going to impose our will here with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And we're just going, we're going to run the football right at you. And I feel like we don't, I feel like sometimes they just don't do that. You know, like that ability is there and I'm not like, you know, you have to run the ball 40 times guy, but when you have Nick Chubb and you have this offensive line and you do have that ability, I I felt like Saturday might've been a prime time to say, you know what, we're just going to impose our will on you guys because you're, from New Orleans, you know, you're a dome team, you're playing outside, it's cold, everything hurts. We're going to try and out-tough you here on, on this drive. And and I would have loved to have seen a, a Steelers-type drive 
like, like they did on that Thursday night game against the Steelers. Well, yeah, and you have the addition of Watson in the run game. So not only can you do what you do, but you can get in a little shotgun, a little pistol. You can do the things that they did against the Steelers, and you can add another running piece to that. You can add the plus one, uh, which we talked about a ton with Kamara and Hill. So they not only can do what they did against Pittsburgh, but they can add to it by not doing anything different, just adding that running uh, running quarterback to it. Uh, you know, it feels like they have that shiny new toy, and they're going to do everything they can to get that shiny new toy going. I just don't think with the weather that was the right week to do that. I think they could have controlled the line of scrimmage. Uh, the Saints really struggled with that gap run to the edge, you know, that outside zone, that CD gap. Uh, and when the Browns State committed to that outside zone, uh, they had some success with it. So I was a little bit shocked they didn't go with it more. Well, you know, you, you said it. They have that shiny new toy, but that shiny new toy can run the football too. <laughs> I, Correct. I mean, look, if you had to choose – which quarterback you would rather have running the football, Taysom Hill or Deshaun Watson? I mean, Taysom Hill's a great runner, but Deshaun Watson is like, he's as good a runner at quarterback as there is. Um, we don't see it as often because he does look to throw more, but I would love to see Deshaun Watson just on occasion do some designed runs for him like the Saints were doing with, with Taysom. I'm actually doing some work on some of the design runs they've done with him. So now they run that guard tackle counter. Uh, they've done the, the read off that. Obviously, they've done the zone read. They've done some uh, uh, zone read passes, some combinations. Uh, they also, they also This week, they did a pin and pull where uh, Watson was reading the second level. Uh, it looks like on film. I'm looking forward to breaking that down. So they're starting to – They don't. You, you just said it. They don't have to do anything new. They just can add to it. So they're going to add a – uh, another guy where usually the quarterback is standing there. I've had a lot of discussions the last couple of days about the plus one. And basically he's just giving you one extra guy, either a blocker or he's a running threat as well. Um, but yeah, they don't have to do anything different. They can do what they do and just add more to it. Okay. Let's talk about what the saints did. That plus one thing. That's been the theme of this pod. And, and you were talking about it in your, your scouting report last Friday. Taysom Hill, Alvin Kamara, the Browns obviously struggled when the saints decided we're just going to throw these guys right at you. Um, what, what, what were they doing, especially in that second half when, when they sort of took over the game? Well, they kind of were there. It was the, what we had talked about uh, in the scouting report. They, they had 29 carries for 132 yards. They controlled the line of scrimmage. They did a little bit. They were a little bit more diverse in the run game than I thought. They ran some, uh, some more power concepts, obviously, with those guys getting downhill. Uh, again, they ran a power read, which was just a two-back power read for the touchdown with Taysom Hill. Uh, and that's a great example of another way to get to the plus one. So you have a jet sweep to the outside with Kamara. Uh, and if the end uh, goes outside, Taysom Hill just keeps the ball up the middle on that power. Uh, so, again, it's the same concept. It's it's power, uh, which everybody runs, but it's just adding an extra guy, adding Taysom Hill. Um, they they kind of had the mentality that I thought the Browns would have. They said, we're going to run it. We're going to be creative in our formations. We're going to try to create some uh, soft edges. We're going to try to run away from uh, formation. We're going to run to the boundary a little bit. Uh, they did some things because of the weather to try to create, to get the defense where they wanted. And they did a bunch of that, and it was uh, very successful. And then they hit Kamara on a big pass play, which I thought was a huge one on a Texas route that I thought was a really game changer as well. And, and just from a Browns perspective, it's discouraging. And, and obviously they've lost a bunch of linebackers. They've gone through like three middle linebackers. They're now without JOK, but it's still just, really discouraging in week 16 to see a team just line up and, and run the football at them. And I would, I would imagine the commanders are, are watching that tape and, and they're going to try to do, you know, they're, 
they're not going to be afraid to kind of line up and just try and run the ball at the Browns too. It's just discouraging that here we are kind of sitting and, and talking about this still. You know, I heard the pod earlier, uh, I think it was the Thursday pod with you guys, and everybody was talking about, you know, what would you get um, if you were picking what do the Browns need right now? And I heard Mary Kay and Ashley and all you guys discuss edge guys and uh, a receiver. Um, and then I heard you say none of it is wrong. Uh, but for me, I've been talking about it since back, uh, way back when in the summer. Their inability to stop the run and their inability of those D tackles to anchor in there is glaring at uh, one of the most ridiculous it's it's really it's it's incredible to watch when you see them getting moved. Uh, it's not a lack of effort. It's not a lack of technique. They're just they're one gap guys who like to penetrate, like to rush the passer, uh, rush the passer, and they're struggling to anchor in there. So um, that that defensive line is doing really. You know they play really hard. They rush the passer, but against that downhill run, uh, it, it has been a struggle since way back in camp. Okay, last thing here. Let's. Let's touch on the Miles Garrett stuff. So, um, you know, Mary Kay and I talked about it a little bit in the open. So, Miles uh, benched for the first series. It ended up being three plays. It didn't really cost the Browns, you know, game wise necessarily, but Miles Garrett benched was fined. Uh, apparently, it was a communication issue. He was sick on Tuesday and Wednesday last week. And apparently, th- there was some sort of communication issue on Wednesday. So, the game itself, like I said, it didn't really cost them much, but. There is a bigger picture here, and for you, as a former coach, that this kind of this kind of puts your antennas up, I guess, as far as you know the Browns' culture and, and what it might say. Well, you know, I I looked. I remember you guys going back way back when when they had trouble with like guys not watching film. Um, they you know people were calling each other out for not watching film, and then you have something like this, which is like you know when you sit a series, it's the same at all levels. It's it's the uh, you're late for a meeting. You don't call. You're uh, you're not in the meeting properly. You're not dressed properly. There's a bunch of different rules with a bunch of different cult, uh, coaches, but your culture is your culture, and their staff has been there long enough where their culture should be ingrained. Uh, their expectations for their players should be ingrained. So when I see that stuff, it tells me that there's there's a fracture in the culture. There's a fracture in how um, what the expectations are each and every day whether it's a meeting, whether it's a team meal, whether it's a walkthrough, whether it's a live practice, there is a fracture uh, in what they're doing. And for me, it's the path is not clear from the, the owners to the, and once again, it's the same at every level. It's, it's top to bottom from owners to coaches, to players, to support staff, to the trainers, to whoever it may be. Everybody's got to be on the same path. And right now the Browns are not on the same path. So when you get these little things with communication, how, you know, for me, that's a, that's a bad, that's a bad sign. And it's not a big deal in terms of uh, he missed a, you know, whatever it may be. And he missed three plays, but on a larger scale, it's happened a number of times now. So something's going on where the expectations of how to be a pro or how to um, fit into what they're doing, something is missing. Yeah. And it's just one of those things, like as you're, as you're putting the wraps on this season, you, you know, you'd like to finish strong, even though you're, you know, you're not going to make the playoffs. You'd like, you know, you would like to build some momentum. It's just a, a distraction. It's just one other thing now that you have to deal with over these last two weeks when as a coach, you're just trying to make sure everybody's engaged, everybody's doing their job, everybody's showing up and, and approaching these games, you know, like they would if the Browns were still in the playoff chase. Well, that comes out right. There's a great example that comes down to your culture. There should be no need for a, if the coaches are going in and saying, hey, we need to make sure we get these guys engaged. We need, we need to make sure that we have our practice the way we want it. Um, you've already lost. 
that needs to be set in way before because you're going to lose, a, you know, in, in football at all levels, you're going to lose. But your how your culture is, how you um, do things is ingrained. So win, lose, or draw, how you do things on a daily basis. You were creatures of habits. You do what you repeatedly do. So whether you win, whether you lose, the expectation is to to do this or whatever that may be. And for every coach, it's different. But for me, it was always, it didn't matter if you won or lost. You were going back to work the next day with a sense of purpose and a sense of passion. So if they're going in and saying, hey, we got to get these guys going, they've already lost. It should already be ingrained. Um, that, that's a great example of culture. It should be ingrained. No matter what the record is, we have to go back to work tomorrow because that's what we do. That's our profession. Um, and for those guys, it should not be hard. But they're humans, and they're, they've lost some games now. And um, but if they had a uh, a culture that kind of dictated, you know, we were talking about Jarvis Landry earlier. You know that you know every practice counts, every meeting counts, being on time for a team meal, being all, all those little things add up. And right now, the Browns aren't doing them. Okay, that is Lance Reisland. You can see his work at cleveland.com slash Browns. And, of course, hear him here uh, twice a week on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Lance, thanks for the time. As always, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We are going to wrap up, as we always do here on a Wednesday, with my playoff committee of one. These are my NFL playoff committee rankings, college football style. In each conference, I rank eight teams, so the seven teams in and the first team out in each conference. My rules are I have to have one team from each division. Uh, I also, if a team has clinched the playoffs, they have to be ranked in this top seven and I don't have to worry about seeding. So in the NFL, if you win your division, you're a top four seed. I don't have to worry about that. I can put teams wherever I want. So let's get to it. In the AFC, Buffalo remains number one. Six wins in a row now. A division title. The top seed in the AFC still on the line, however. The Bengals on the road next for Buffalo. Cincinnati's actually still my number two. They're now nine and one in their last ten. Their one loss came against the Browns. They avenged it. They still haven't locked up the AFC North, however. Cincinnati remains number two. Kansas City, number three. They host Denver and travel to Las Vegas with the top seed and Patrick Mahomes, MVP, still left to play for. It wouldn't shock me if Kansas City ends up number one by the end of the season. As I've said before, these three, I think you can put in any order and make a pretty convincing case. I think Buffalo and Kansas City, though, probably have the strongest case for number one. So, of course, I have Kansas City ranked behind Cincinnati. Whatever. Number four, the LA Chargers moving up a spot. Justin Herbert is finally in the playoffs and they are heating up at the right time. They are just ahead of number five, Baltimore, who moves up from the first team out. They finally clinched a playoff spot, so they have to be in. But, you know, look, somehow they just win. They're four and two since their bye and have managed to win three of four with Tyler Huntley either starting or playing most of the game. I don't know how Baltimore does it, but they just win football games. Number six is Jacksonville. I just like them more than Tennessee. It's all right there for them, and they're now four and one since their bye. Number seven, Miami. They slip all the way from number four. That goodwill from that, I guess what we called a good loss in Buffalo, it is gone. The collapse is in full swing. And now you've got Tua in the concussion protocol. So who knows if he's even going to be able to play on Sunday. We will see. Uh, but Miami's slipping all the way to number seven. And how about this? I'm going to put Pittsburgh at number eight. This team is doing what the Browns should be doing. They're hanging around in the playoff picture. They're finding ways to win. This should be the Browns. Browns fans should be upset that their team is not the one that's seven and eight and fighting for a playoff spot right now. Over to the NFC. 
a new number one. It's San Francisco. Uh, Philadelphia lost to Dallas. I'm not going to penalize them that much for it, but San Francisco gets their spot at number one. Eight wins in a row for the 49ers. Number two is Philadelphia. They shouldn't get punished too much, like I said, for losing with their backup quarterback. But, hey, look who the 49ers are winning with. That's why they jumped the Eagles. At number three, it's Dallas, 11-4. and four. They needed it against Philadelphia, and now they have a game in Tennessee and another in Washington to wrap up their season. At number four, Minnesota. The NFC North champs are a long shot for the top seed, so it's all about getting it to January in one piece. Coming in at number five, up a spot, the New York Giants. It comes down to who had the best loss. Sorry, Tampa and the NFC South, and I guess it was the Giants. At number six, the Detroit Lions, up a spot from number five. The Lions were always destined to crash back to earth some week, but they still have a chance to make the playoffs. At number seven, maybe a little bit of a surprise here. I have to have somebody from the NFC South. It's Carolina. Believe it or not, the Panthers can win out and they can win the division. And at number eight, Tampa Bay, a win over Carolina gives them the NFC South title. A loss means they're chasing the Panthers. And I think they're going to lose that game, but we will see. All right, there you go. My NFL playoff committee of one rankings here on the Orange Brown Talk podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify. And also, if you prefer to listen on YouTube, these are going up every morning on our YouTube channel. Search Cleveland Browns on cleveland.com to find that. And of course, become a football insider subscriber. Cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page to get info and get signed up. For Mary Kay and Lance, I am Dan. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>